Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right, we are up and we are actually here with Sylvia today. Uh, live, our first in in studio guest, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that is true. First, you have a nice studio. Anyway, um, what you know, this is totally unrelated, but I thought I'd share this anyway because because hell, it's our podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. So, my son was asked to do a, a research project, and they were supposed to pick some animal, you know, that, that they're supposed to research. And he's six years old, right? Uh-huh. Normally, kids are picking like a whale or a panda, or, you know. So he picked a coelacanth. Do you guys know what a coelacanth is? I have no idea what that so is. So a coelacanth is a prehistoric fish that was uh, it's around 400 million years old, and it was thought to be extinct. And then someone discovered one off the coast of uh, South Africa in 1938. So they found these prehistoric fish that existed, uh, you know, living for a lot long. So it's like a fossil that lived for, for all these years. So it's a crazy thing. So we're reading about it. And I was learning some stuff and you know, could we, one of the things he has, what, what classify your animal? And so it's a fish. And he's like, how do I know the difference between a fish and a mammal? Cause you know, he thought it was a mammal. I said, no, no, it's a fish. And so we looked up. And so if you look at the sea mammals and we all know this, that, that fish have gills and mammals have lungs and fish uh, give birth to our, sorry, mammals give birth to live animals and, and then fish have eggs. But the other thing I didn't know, maybe you guys knew this. There's two facts I didn't know. Did you know that, mammals their back fin goes up and down whereas fish go to side to side and, and, and i did, did you guys know that no uh-uh. i didn't know that either so if, if, there's a, if, the, if the back flipper you know the back fin goes up and down that's a that's a mammal so i guess dolphins and whales and all that stuff they go up and down if you think about it, if you ever look at a dolphin or whale they're always you know they're the way they're shaped yeah. flattened they go up and down and then the other th- interesting fact which i didn't know did you guys know that whales evolved from a land species did you guys know that i didn't know that no uh-uh. yeah so whales actually first started out on land and then they you know migrated back into the water so you know evolution was first the fish kind of walked on land and they hung out and some of them got tired and went back in the water so whales and water so they actually have remnants of like hip bones in their in their body which huh. i learned i learned that at the carnivore convention talked to some of these scientists so interesting stuff so sorry no that, that's no, awesome and yeah. it shows that you can sorry that's awesome very little digression. Yeah. it shows that you can learn stuff from a six-year-old too it's amazing sylvia thank you so much for coming on i've known sylvia now for a little while children so she mean we actually had the opportunity to uh, be in this little German documentary. So I, got, you know, we've been following each other on social media. We uh, came out to meet her, and we ran around and played, you know, played threw some balls in the air and pretended like we were long lost friends and hugging each other on video. Do it all that. Went to the, one of the metabolic lab and got our got our you know our our exercise VO two max tested and all that stuff. So that was cool. So, but so you've been a great uh, just you know you call yourself the biohacking chick. It's your name's changed a bunch of times. For we you were. The biohacking keto chick and now you're the biohacking chick. You've done just a tremendous amount of self-experimentation, which is wonderful because we get to get data that, you know, sometimes hard to get. And granted, it's all N equals one stuff, but it's also just data that's very relevant. So we're going to talk about 
some of that stuff today. So could you tell us, tell Zach who you are, where you're from, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you spent a period of time as a vegan uh, and, and, and you've decided that that's not right for you. And this, just tell us a little bit about your story and then we can get into some of these crazy experiments you've done over the, over the, over the last year or so. Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Poland. Um, I'm, we've moved to um, Chicago when I was 13. And I've been always active kid at, you know, running, playing soccer, stuff like that. And since- Can I, can I interrupt you for one second? Mm-hmm. Do you know, have you ever heard of Kazimar Pulaski Day? Yes. Right, that's a big holiday in the Chicago because right. <laughs> there's such a high <laughs> Polish population up there. Anyway, I thought yeah, I'd yeah, there's another... more Polish people in Chicago than there are in Warsaw. That is an interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, lived there for 18 years and then recently moved to California and now in Phoenix. But when I moved to um, when we moved to U.S., I started having like weird health issues, and it was probably from the food diet. You know, the U.S. food. I was so crappy and processed that I started eating and I noticed that, you know, I started playing soccer and my energy levels just weren't the same. And I was sleepy all the time and tired all all the time. And at the very young age, I started experimenting with diet and whatnot. And then, um, but it was never very clean. Like the first diet I probably came across was probably um, the low, low carb, like, what was it? Atkins. That's what I started with. And it was very processed, heavy on cheese. And it it helped me a little bit. But at the same time, I I wasn't really, it, it didn't, I don't feel like it benefited me in any way. And then going into college, I came across all these vegan documentaries that, you know, showed the worst case scenario of how the animals were treated and whatnot. And that kind of like scared me away from eating meat, even though like growing up in Poland, we had our own farm, you know, we treated the animals the right way, you know, and we lived off of our own land and we never had health issues or any, any other health problems. So, but anyway, watching the documentaries and all that stuff kind of swayed me away from eating meat. And so I gave it up and that was early in college years. And I was a runner back then. And at that time before going vegan, I already like cleaned up my diet pretty well to a point where I was just eating vegetables, fruits, um, some nuts, seeds, um, chicken, and some fish here and there. And so nothing basically was processed. It was whole food um, from there on until the vegan start, thing started. And when I switched to vegan diet, I physically, I never really felt better. And I noticed that my energy started just dipping really badly. And I struggled like to keep up with the you know, active part of my life, but still like mentally it felt like this is the right thing to do because, you know, I'm going to save the world by not eating animals, you know, I'm, and, and it felt good, like mentally in, in a sense. And that, you know, I thought that I was doing a good thing, but for my physical health, definitely, you know, I didn't feel any benefit from doing that. So that went on for like years. And then my body got so malnourished that um, I basically was breaking a rib almost like once a month from doing just like minor things. I would trip over a box 
backs and I would hit the side of my rib cage and my my rib would um, break fracture. How do you how do you know it broke? I mean, that's a big, that's a, did you get an x-ray? Uh, yeah, I would go uh, get an x-ray. I mean, the pain was so severe. I mean, you can't even go and pee without pain. You can't laugh without pain. It's, it's, the pain is just horrible. And yeah, I, I did get an x-ray. They say, well, they told me that there's nothing they can really do to help me to, you know, fix it. Decided to just, you know, wait it out, I guess. It's going to heal on its own. That was yeah, there's not, there's not any good yeah ways to fix ribs typically they've done they've actually because I, I fixed a lot of bones in my day and ribs you don't typically fix yeah there were some dog they try to do plate 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 ribs and dogs you know put metal plates on there but those didn't turn out too well so so it's true you don't you don't actually fix so I, i'm really surprised that you actually broke ribs at your age you're very young and you know we had a guy on bobby risto recently he was talking about you know basically having muscle tears at with very little you know, a little bit of activity. And, and again, he was also got, was, you know, pursuing a vegan diet. So I, I'm, I'm just a little interested when I hear these things. It's kind of a little bit, a little bit shocking to me. Yeah, it was basically after probably like two years of <clears throat> being vegan. And then later after that, I switched to even more severe version of that when I was just eating fruits. So you've heard of, uh, what's her name? freely the banana girl so i kind of started <laughs> yeah i started following like their advice because after doing vegan diet for so long my digestive issues started getting really bad to a point where i couldn't even tolerate you know eating any nut seeds i would break out in rash and i couldn't digest anything like vegetables were bothering me so their idea behind just going, you know, eating fruits was that. So their idea behind amazing energy, amazing, you know, digested digestion and whatnot. So, you know, it sounded appealing to me at that point. And so, yeah, I, I went for it. I tried it out and it was even worse than vegan, the, the raw vegan that I did. And it's just from there on, I started having a lot of, uh, mental issues when I was severely depressed and from then on um, I developed eating disorder it started with just like binge eating basically then it turned into bulimia that lasted like six years and it was just it was horrible I mean I know that a lot of people follow them and and the banana girl and the other guy who was the durian writer or whatever his name was um and it's scary because you think like they have such huge following and people go for it and then you can develop like all these crazy you know lifelong almost um, diseases that stem from it and it's you know the mental aspect from eliminating like all the saturated fats from my diet was just profound i mean i struggled so badly i went through a period when I actually started planning my own suicide. I was so depressed. And, you know, waking up in the morning and just not wanting to leave my bed because there was no point of living for me. You know, it was it was that bad. So when people say like going, yeah, go vegan, you're gonna, you know, save yourself and save the planet, I'm that wasn't the case for me for sure. 
Yeah, Sylvia, if I can just jump in real quick, I think like because your your story like mirrors Bobby Risto is almost to a T in the sense that uh, uh, you know you kind of got into vegan the, the vegan lifestyle and the same type with the same type of a, approach like you were gonna do both good for yourself and good for the planet, good for everyone around you. So it was like a win 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 situation. And then you know over time you start to see the deterioration take place. And I think Bobby. Bobby is adamant that he was super strict, no cheats for four straight years. And he was not only, you know, strict vegan, but also vegan the right way, following all the experts, the daily dozen and all that sort of stuff. And um, it, for him, it was like, just that was so clear to him. Like if, if that doesn't work, then it's just not going to work for him individually. And um, he's convinced that's the reality for everyone. Um, would you say when you were vegan, like, were you following it like pretty strict following all the experts like Dr. Greger and, and those folks with kind of how you implemented it? Yeah, absolutely. And I always, you know, I made sure I supplemented with uh, all the supplements that they say that, you know, vegans or the um, nutrients that the meat, uh, vegans are missing out on. And I always made sure that it was, you know, really good, high quality, all that stuff, you know, but it was good bio, uh, bioavailable and yeah I followed all their advice and it was always no matter what I did and even though I follow what they say it was always that I did something wrong you know or it was always oh it's a detox symptom and I'm like okay <laughs> I've been doing this for three years now and it's always detox symptom I mean how long can you detox for like seriously and then you know, with all the digestive issues. And I also had anemia my whole life pretty much. And so what they would tell me, oh, just take more spirulina, it's gonna help you. I'm like, no, it, it didn't help me. All it did was basically give me green stools and orange hands. Like I never absorbed anything from that. And it was, it was just crazy, you know, hearing them say that I'm constantly doing something wrong, that it's always detox it was just frustrating where, you know, on a carnivore diet, you start eating meat and right away you feel alive and, and better. Like there's no, yeah, you go through a period of time when it, you, you know, you transition and it's not all beautiful, but at the same time, I don't feel like it's like it's with a vegan diet where it's, oh yeah, it's detox, you're detoxing. Or would they would say like, oh, the meat, uh, you know, after three years, been they've been telling me still that, oh, it's the meat, you're still detoxing the meat, you know, it's still putrefying in your colon. I'm like, what? After this time, you know, three years, four years? So it was always like some sort of crazy talk that they would create that, you know, they would want to make sure that you stick with it and you know, as soon as you start challenging the, their belief, they like turn around and they, you know, they don't want to help you anymore. It's like you're excluded from the clan, you know, it's just you're on your own. Sylvia, how, I, I, maybe I missed you. How long were you, did you actively do veganism for? How long was that? How many years or how long so was it? I did three years of, I started out, so before I went like raw vegan, I did a vegetarian that was like cooked. So that was probably a year. Then I did like three years of raw vegan. And then I did that one year, almost one year of just fruits, um, like the freely or banana diet, whatever they call it. So, so you yeah. went from vegetarian to raw vegan. 
Mm -hmm. to fruitarian did you ever do like all just the whole food not raw vegan stuff yeah i did that as well you did that as well yeah i after um i had the MRSA uh, happen two years ago um i decided to go back to vegan thinking that okay if i do maybe a vegan type of thing with just like cooked starches you know make sure that i you know almost like puree everything almost like baby food type of thing because they're promoting that it's really good for the uh, microbiome to feed the gut bacteria because after the surgeries that I went through to clean up the MRSA infection I couldn't even drink water like my gut burned so bad and so I figured like okay maybe if I do that it's gonna help um it helped a little bit for maybe like two weeks I noticed that my gut was feeling a little bit better, but after that, it was just, I was craving meat again, and I was starting to have, like, the binge eating uh, issues again, and, like, mentally, I wasn't feeling good at all. So you had, and you said MRSA, and for people who don't know, that's methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and that's a, that's a you know, one of these uh, infections that did botly you know, can, can really be problematic for people. And you had, I think you said you had necrotizing fasciitis, which is another just a horrible life-threatening condition. And you ended up with, you know, this infection across your abdomen where you had to have several surgical, uh, you know, incisions to, to, to basically release. And, it, you know, when you, when you show your pictures, it, it looks like a bear got you. It looks like a bear went and ripped across your belly. I mean, you know, you've got, I mean, I mean, if you guys haven't seen Sylvia, I mean, Sylvia's is ripped. I mean, she's got a really, just really nice physique, but then you, but then it's, you've got these like, it's almost like Wolverine claws. So yeah, so people like, think that I was fighting for my steaks with the bear. I'm like, yeah, well, that's a better story than, you, you know. You can come up with a few good stories. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, that's the, uh, but that's the reason for that. And, you know, tell us a little bit about that. So you, what was going on when you got this MRSA infection? And tell us a little bit about that, because that's, that's kind of an interesting you know, thing. Yeah. You know, it's not common. It's not common in healthy people to to have that sort of thing. So I don't know what was going on, but uh, you know. Yeah, it was um, actually it happened when I visited my family in Phoenix. We went um, we went hiking. It was a very like stressful time, I guess. Like we didn't have. Um, I did notice that like my immune system was a little bit down. But um, what my doctors are suspecting what happened is. I had a brown recluse bite on my leg like a few months prior to that. And that was infected with MRSA, but my, um, the doctor I went to, they never told me that that was actually MRSA because when they took the, um, the sample from the leg, they're like, okay, we're going to call you back and let you know what it is. And meanwhile, they gave me steroid cream um, and then and antibiotics. Antibiotics weren't for MRSA, or for something else so they were really working but the cream I guess it helped but um, like I said they never called me back to say that it was MRSA so later on like a couple months later I go to Phoenix um, we do like a lot of hiking a lot of, we were very active and then you know all of a sudden I noticed like this weird almost like pimple on my like below my uh, waistline and it started growing super quickly and it was so painful. And this, it, it, I think I noticed it on Saturday On Sunday, it already got so big that when I tried walking, it hurt. 
and then I was flying out Sunday and it just started growing so quickly that I could barely walk on the plane I was having a fever it, it was really bad and then pretty much within days it grew to a point where it looked like I had had a snake underneath my skin going from uh, underneath my belly button all, all the way to my ribs and so I go to ER and I had like 15 doctors around me because they were like, what is this? They've never seen anything like that. And prior to that, I did go to urgent care uh, so they could drain it or do something with it. And there, the lady there goes like, okay, I'm going to make a small incision because I don't want to leave scars. I'm like, well, okay, whatever helps. So she did that. It gave me antibiotics, sent me back home. She said, come back, you know, in a couple of days, we're going to check up on it. You know, in a couple of days, I was in horrible shape, and I just had to go to ER from there. And yeah, in ER, they were just like, what is this? They had no idea what was going on. Um, I had like few specialists um, fly in because they honestly had no idea. Like, it looked really bad. Um, they were pumping me with different antibiotics. They weren't helping. Um, that's why they had to go in. Um, and they did CT scan. After that, they did first surgery. They removed, uh, and then my surgeon said that, yeah, it's necrotizing fasciitis, um, but they didn't know what it was caused by. So um, they were still trying to figure out a good antibiotic that would just kill the infection. But whatever they were using, it just wasn't working. They were using one for MRSA, but my body was cleaning her out so quickly that it wasn't helping with the infection. So then um, later it kind of hit me um, to call the clinic that I went for with my leg to ask like, what was that infection? So, and they told me, oh, we called you, we told you uh, and left a message that was MRSA. So then I told my surgeon and they're like, okay, if that was MRSA, then, mo uh, then most likely this is caused by MRSA as well. So, and they, when I was in the ER, they took the nose swab. So that came back negative, but they had to wait uh, for um, the other results from the, um, from the pus, I guess, to come back. And that took like four days almost to, to get the results back from that. So that's why they were kind of like, they couldn't figure out what it was. And then finally, when, when I told them that the first one on my leg was MRSA, they're like, okay and they're starting treating me with the right antibiotics and that solved the issue. But meantime, you know, after the first surgery, um, the infection was still spreading. So the next day I had to go in for another surgery because it was started going into my back. Um, so they did another CT scan and another surgery and then the third surgery pretty much the, the third day. So that was just like back to back, constant, you know, we don't know what's going on until they finally realized that, yeah, it was caused by MRSA. So I had, uh, I was loaded with antibiotics for the whole week. I was in urgent care. And yeah, after that, my whole gut was messed up like pretty profoundly. Yeah, I mean, they probably, I imagine vancomycin and some of these other drugs that we typically get from MRSA were, were administered, would be my guess. But, and, those, and that can have issues with renal toxicity and some other things, and it probably plays, plays, plays havoc on the gut, I would imagine. Um, 
So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, at what point did you decide I'm going to go carnivore? Because that's a, that's kind of a crazy radical departure. What inspired you to do that? And then, you know, what made you make that decision? And, and tell us a little bit about that transition. Hold on one second. If you just right before you answer that, if you want to scoot just a little more in, just so I don't want the YouTube watchers to have half your face. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so uh, after I tried out the cooked vegan for like two weeks, um, somebody uh, told me about the carnivore diet, uh, about you being on the, I think, what was his name? Muncie, Ryan Muncie's podcast, I think. That's where you were at. And they're like, oh, you should check this out since you like to experiment with diets. So I'm like, yeah, right. And I listened to that. I'm like, that sounds interesting. And then I saw um, a lot of people post about, you know, starting the carnivore diet. And I'm like, you people are crazy. You're going to get colon cancer, you know. And right away, I was just having like this negative notion uh, about it. I'm like, this is insane. But I started following them and see just to see like, okay, what's going on over there. And then I like dove into research and you know, every single time I, I try something, I do a lot of research just to, you know, see the positive and negative and whatnot. So I did that and I'm like, okay, at this point, I have nothing to lose. I mean, I think I've tried pretty much everything. And yeah, it was hard mentally because, you know, going from the vegan background and and there wasn't like much information about the whole environmental thing impact that you know carnivore diet might have. And Sylvia, let, let me interrupt you just for one second because you said you tried everything. Now some people would say just to play a devil's advocate, they would say, well, "Why don't you just eat a normal, balanced diet of healthy foods?" Yeah, I, I did that. You did that too. Yeah, okay. I did that too. I did okay. the keto. I did the. I, I did eat you know what you call normal. And I still avoided like the wheat, um, dairy most of the time because I noticed that later dairy would give me problems. So I avoided most grains and um, I went through a period when I did include the beans and then I eliminated them. I felt better when I did eliminate, it, uh, eliminate beans and um, grains never really worked for me. I eliminated those, that as well. So essentially I, I went through a period when I was just eating, you know, fruits, vegetables, I was eating some fish, eggs, um, and meat. And after that, you know, like I started having issues with Brussels sprouts or with broccoli and cauliflower. I'm like, what's going on with that? And then, you know, everybody was saying how olive oil is beneficial for the health. I started adding that and I was having major, major issues with olive oil and I'm like okay that's not right and I started noticing that even coconut oil was giving me problems and then from then on um, it was just like eliminating a little bit by a little by little and eventually I just noticed you know for myself I'm like okay so am I just stuck with meat at this point meat and fish basically and and then I started noticing on Instagram people posting about the carnivore diet and it sounded interesting. And, and like I said, at that point, I'm like, I figured, you know, I have nothing else to lose. And what was funny to me was I went to a doctor who diagnosed me with polyphenol 
intolerance. I'm like, seriously, is there even like such a thing? I thought that polyphenols were so beneficial, you know, all the antioxidants, all that stuff, you know, that should be good for you. He's like, no, it, sounds, it looks like you're, like you're reacting um, in a negative way to polyphenols. I'm like, okay, so blueberries are out, like chocolate is out. He's like, yeah, basically. He's like, yeah, coffee too. Like, okay, so back to meat, you know, just meat and, and water, basically. So that kind of what, that, that was kind of um, at the point, I was kind of at the point where like, okay, I have really nothing to lose at this point. And so why not give it a try? And I did. And, you know, the first week alone. Hey, Sylvia, let, before you, let me just clarify something, because I think it's interesting, you know, that you developed all these sort of significant gastrointestinal issues to, to, to foods that some people still tolerate well. You know, there's plenty of people out there that do fine with blueberries and chocolate and, and so on and so forth. And some people don't. And, and I wonder if just because of the prolonged raw vegan, vegan diet, and then the massive amounts of antibiotics that it just really beat your guts up so bad that you, that you became super sensitive to these things. I just wonder, yeah. do you ever think about that? Because there's people out there that are going to say, this sounds crazy. You know, uh, you know, there's lots of people. I mean, Zach can probably eat blueberries and he doesn't, you know, die. And, you know, and I probably can too. But I mean, I think, it, I think that that is a real thing. And, I, and it's kind of interesting trying to tease out why this happens to certain people more than others and to figure out who really needs to be on a carnivore diet and who, you know, may enjoy it versus the people that absolutely have to be on it. So let's just, this, this, that's just my little sort of observation, but go, go on and continue with the story. Well, with the, uh, with the raw vegan diet um, towards the end of it, what kind of scared me and away from it too, was that I started noticing blood in my stool. So that was, um, aside from the other digestive issues that I developed from the vegan diet, um, that was another thing that kind of was like, okay, what's going on over here, you know? And um, I noticed that would happen after uh, eating nuts and, you know, and I had people tell me, oh, you have to prepare it the right way. Well, I did sprouted it, I soaked it, sprouted it, made it the right way, you know, and, and that was still happening to me. So, um, when people say, oh, you didn't prepare it right, well, I, I think I did. You know, I followed the people who, who said, you know, who showed how you should make it right so your, your body can assimilate. Assimilate. <laughs> there goes my Polish. <laughs> um, all the nutrients. So I did all of that. And yeah, I, I was still struggling. And from the digestive issues to seeing blood in my stools, I mean, that was pretty much like the, you know, point where I was like, okay, this, this isn't right. Um, and yeah, it's definitely contributed a lot to the digestive issues because that was pretty much um, why, you know, later on I had to switch to the fruit diet because um, my digestive tract just couldn't handle anything at that point anymore, um, aside from fruits and, you know, and everything was pretty much coming out of me looking the same way as it went in, which, you know, it's a sign on its own that, you know, the digestion is not working properly. So, yeah, when some people will transition to carnivore diet for to lose weight or whatnot, other people have a lot of healing to do. And I feel like carnivore diet is a really, it's a really healing diet, you know, especially for me, the first week, um, 
of carnivore, I just felt so much better right away, uh, digestion wise. And, you know, on top of that, um, I was diagnosed with IBD. And that was another thing that I mean, I'm still healing from that, you know, and yeah, it is a, a long journey. And I'm, I don't expect to heal like over a month, you know, I do have people who reach out to me and they're like, oh, I've been doing carnivore for a month and I'm still experiencing this and that. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, it will take a long time, especially if, if you were a vegan, you know, if you were so severely malnourished that it's going to take some time. Although I'm noticing that, you know, I've done all these DEXA scans and all the other different tests to just see how my body is doing. And I, my bones got, uh, much stronger since um, going carnivore. Just basically a month into carnivore diet, um, my bone density increased by, you know, for some people it might be not a lot, but it was, it went from like under um, one to, to one point something um, in terms of density. So for me, that's a lot of improvement, you know, if, if I can see that and I can feel it too. So it's not just you know, blood work is one thing and it can change pretty much from week to week or day to day. But the way how the way I feel um, and how strong and good, like mentally how I feel that for me, that's the most important thing than any lab that I can do. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, I was just going to say like... um, I think one of the reasons I was excited to have you on amongst many was uh, you're doing this carnivore approach. You've done a lot of everything else, arguably everything else, Mm. but you didn't just kind of do it on a whim and do it and say, ah, you know, I feel better this way and find yourself in this situation where um, you're kind of in a position where it's like, it's an anecdote Uh, because you are maybe the most diligent person I've seen following a carnivore diet in terms of tracking these things from whether you want to look at blood metrics or like DEXA scan type stuff, just to try to get an idea of what actually is going on outside of what you suspect. So I guess I kind of have two questions related to that. One is, were you doing that sort of thing when you were on the vegan diet as well? Were you kind of tracking your uh, your your blood tests and stuff like that throughout that process, or did that kind of start once you your health started to fail and you found more of an incentive to maybe target those things in a more acute way? And then when you did get into kind of the carnivore side of things, uh, I think I, I, maybe there's not a question as much as I think I'd love to hear about some of the different tests you have done because I think our listeners would really love to 
kind of get into some of the stuff that you've looked at for things like grass fed versus grain finished, mm -hmm. um, like the mega three side of things, uh, dairy. I know you had a really interesting post on your Instagram just recently about kind of your reaction to dairy and things like that, even within the context of a carnivore diet. So, um, that's probably enough. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, with the vegan diet, I, I didn't do blood work mostly because I was in college and and I couldn't afford to do um, any blood work and I didn't have health insurance at that point either. So it would be a little bit pricey and it wasn't as easy to get uh, blood work done like it is now. You can just pretty much order labs online Like go to Life Extension and order any lab you want. And then you go to LabCorp, draw your blood and it's easy as that. But back then when I did vegan diet, it wasn't as simple. So the only... Um, measure I have was basically just, you know, weight and how I felt and how I felt wasn't pretty. So, and uh, with the carnivore, um, and even before carnivore, I did a lot of tests like on ketogenic diet and, and before that, and yeah, with, uh, with carnivore diet, what I've noticed is that my iron levels improved, so like my anemia was reversed. So that was nice to see. Um, but recently, before I moved to Phoenix, I before I took my um, recent butt work, I actually lowered my consumption of red meat in favor of uh, seafood, just to see what's going to happen. And then I kind of bumped my um, saturated fat with um, in form of ghee just to see how it would affect my LDL levels. Because in, in, in the past, when I was just eating steak without um, any added fat like ghee or tallow or, or um, lard, my LDL was like in 300s. And now when I took um, my recent blood work, it dropped down to hundreds, which, which was still um, flagged as high. But it was interesting to see because I remember Dr. Baker would say, you know, if you want to lower your LDL, just eat more saturated fat. So, you know, that was kind of my experiment. I'm like, I was wondering, okay, if I do that, if it, is it going to go down? And it did. Um, but then my iron levels were flagged as low because probably, you know, I didn't eat enough red meat. Um, but then my other inflammation markers were really, really low. So that was good to see. Um, hey, Sylvia, I've got, you know, you sent me your labs and I'm just going to run through your one year carnivore labs. And then we'll talk about some of these unique experiments that, uh, that you've done over time that, around different things. And so, you know, just looking at yourself, you know, your blood glucose was 68. I mean, you know, no one's going to complain about that. Your uric acid was 4.8, which is completely in the normal range. Your BUN creatinine were completely normal, 13 and 0.8. Uh, and this is for the geeks that really want to geek out on this stuff. I mean, it's, and I've seen so many carnivore labs, and they're generally, they generally all look good, although I, I always make the caveat that we have to realize that labs can change for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's, it's understandable. Your sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, phosphorus. Total protein, albumin, globulin, bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase, and LDH, you know, liver function enzymes, all completely normal, no elevations at all. Um, you know, your iron level, again, your iron level, even though you're eating a carnivore diet with lots of red meat, uh, or, you know, and I guess right before this test, maybe a little less, was still considered on the low side, with 21 being the number you had, and 27 to 159 being the range. And so this chronic anemia that you've had, 
uh, you know, I guess you said when you're eating more red meat, it's, it's in the normal range. And when you don't eat as much, it goes mm -hmm. down. Your total cholesterol was only 176. Your triglycerides were 74. Your HDL was 57. LDL was 104, which was flagged as high, but really that's pretty darn low if you ask me. Um, you know, and your ratios look great. No risk factors there. Your C-reactive protein, despite eating all this animal product, was 0 0.22, tiny, tiny, no inflammation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Your hormone levels all look normal. This is something interesting. Your homocysteine level, which a lot of people will say that particularly eating a diet. Now, let me ask you, are you eating a lot of collagen supplements or anything like that? Are you doing a lot of collagen supplements? Not collagen supplements, but I did start eating like more collagen rich food, like um, chicken feet. <laughs> chicken feet. Okay. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, there's a little bit of controversy about that. So your homocysteine level was... 12.7 on a, you know, zero to 15 being normal. So it's not elevated. And one of the concerns is if we're taking in too much methionine uh, per muscle meat and not getting enough glycine as per eating a lot of collagen, then potentially, particularly in a folate deficient state, you can drive up your homocysteine level. Homocysteine has been associated with uh, cardiovascular risk and risk of inflammation, which obviously you have no inflammation whatsoever based on your <clears throat> inflammatory labs. And so it's just an interesting thing to look at. I think it's something that we just have to continue to look at people because I, I, I'm still open-minded enough and skeptical enough about, you know, I'm seeing too many results that, that don't necessarily line up with everything we, we think we know. And so I, I'm always cautious about saying you must do something a certain way until we can, can prove that, you know, white cells, fine. Hemoglobin slightly low, which would, you know, which would, you know, 10.9, uh, where 11.1 would be the threshold for normal on, on, on this lab, you know, assay. So, you know, slightly, slightly anemic, slightly low iron. Everything else is just looks tremendously good. Your vitamin D level was 32.9, which is within the normal range. Um, hemoglobin A1C was 4.9. Again, you know, for people that, that put all their faith in the labs, I mean, your labs look pretty damn good. Uh, you know, like I said, but more importantly, it's how are you performing, how you feel, what's body composition, all that stuff. So let's talk about, um, you know, those are just a general lab. So you've done some, just talk about some of these interesting experiments you've done and what results you got. So I know you did a recent experiment where, we, where you did a month of grass-finished beef and a month of grain-finished beef, and you looked at your omega index, your, your EPA, DHA levels, and stuff like that. Talk us a little bit about that little experiment you did, because I think people will find it interesting. Yeah, so I even prior to that, I did an um, experiment with just doing um, chicken and a little bit of fish and um, other meats, and I tested my omega-3s, and they were kind of pretty decent. And then I did, just to compare grass-fed to um, grain-fed, because all these um, health gurus out there are claiming that, you know, Grass-fed has so much um, better ratio in terms of omega-3. So I was curious, like, is that really true? Or how is that really going to affect my blood markers in terms of omega-3s? So when I tested the 30 days on um, grain finish or grain-fed uh, beef, which was basically just Costco meat, and it was um, some ribeyes and the majority of it was just New York strips, um, the blood, the omega threes, um, yeah, they were lower than the, in the grass fed. The grass fed that I did was also thirty days, and that was um, from all the meat was from U.S. Wellness Meats, 
And the same thing, some ribeyes and New York strips, majority New York strips. And um, to be honest, there wasn't much difference in ter terms of omega-3 levels uh, or, or the ratios. Um, and I didn't feel any different whatsoever. I mean, maybe a little better on grain fed because I saved more money in that. You know, <laughs> it cost me like $300 for the whole um, month of, of eating um, Costco meat versus 700 on, you know, grass fed. Um, yeah, there are, you know, people are concerned about the environmental issues that, you know, grass fed is better for the environment and whatnot. But when it comes down to health, you know, to individual, if you can't afford grass fed and you worry about, you know, your omegas, I mean, honestly, for me at least, how I felt uh, physically, mentally, there was, um, there was no difference. And what I, what I later tested too was when I did um, eat grain fed um, beef and then added uh, seafood maybe like twice a week, my uh, ratios were optimal with, you know, some doctors consider, I guess what other doctors consider optimal. Um, so the omega-3 to 6 ratios were really good and omega-3 levels were really good. But again, like, how did I feel? Did I feel any different, any better? No, not really. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, are concerned with all these numbers, but in terms of like noticeable effects from it, it's just, there's not much difference. And is it worth it at the end? Um, it wasn't for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll put a couple comments in here because I, I've kind of said the same thing over time and we don't really know. It's interesting you did the experiment and, and it did show, like you said, there was a, sl there was a slight difference between grass-finished versus grain-finished and a slightly more favorable uh, omega-3 index and omega-3 amounts. Uh, and again, this was, a, this was an erythrocyte test, so this is, again, a transient test. That, that, you know, it's dependent on the, on the blood cells and there's other tests where you can look at the tissue, I think. But the interesting part of that is it was, there was a slight difference, not much, nothing you really you just get excited about. You say, okay, it's maybe a little bit different, which makes sense because beef is really not a great source of omega-3s anyway. I mean, there's a little bit in both of them. There's a little bit of omega-6, a little bit of omega-3. There's not a ton in either one, no matter how you do it. Uh, and then when you added fish in, the difference was tremendous, and you had this really what they would consider optimized omega-3 profile. Now, the problem with that is that is still – a little bit speculative as to what that actually means because some of that data uh, is basically based on observing populations that uh, eat a lot of fish and they do well. And, and so the question is, like, like we had at, at Amber O'Hearn at the Carver Conference, went over this point, there's this Inuit paradox where these Inuit people were very free of cardiovascular disease. And, and despite the vegan revisionist history where they talk about you know, Inuits from the 1970s having heart disease, the, the, you know, the, the actual observations back going back 100 years consistently showed these people were free of heart disease. And they, you know, and a lot of times they incorporated seafood in their diet. And so the, it, it, it became assumed that you had need to have this omega-3 index higher, but it very well could be just because they didn't eat the processed carbohydrates, the grains and all that stuff. And that may be the reason they were healthier. And so we don't know. And so it's still a little bit speculative about these omega-3, omega-6 indices. And I just want to put that out there. Maybe something to it. Uh, and there's some data that may support that, but it's really, in my view, not a, not a clear cut. You know, you got you to gotta maximize everything. And I think it's really important to, to, to really uh, assess, object, you know, both 
both objectively and subjectively and, and, and saying what's going on with my health overall outside of what these lab markers are. But it is interesting that you're doing that. So let's talk about, I saw you did some really extensive uh, nutrient profile testing, like looking at vitamin levels and mineral levels, uh, you know, while you're on a carnivore diet. Can you a little talk a little bit about that? I know you tested just about everything in the world. Mm. Some of the stuff I had, had never even heard of. And I was just like, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I did the micronutrient test with SpectraCell and it basically measures all the uh, nutrients in, in the body. And I did that um, when I did the ketogenic diet and I supplemented with pretty much like every, everything. Um, and when I did that and measured, um, I was still, I think I had a few deficiencies or like borderline deficiencies. And then when I measured on carnivore diet um, without any supplements whatsoever, um, I had fewer borderline deficiencies. And I think one of them was vitamin D or something like that, which, you know, I measured, I measured that probably in winter. So um, it's, you know, it, it was funny to me because I spent so much money on supplements doing the ketogenic and prior to ketogenic diet, probably like thousands of dollars on, on, you know, supplements alone. And just comparing that to going carnivore and not having any deficiencies was crazy to me. I'm like, okay, you know, that thousand dollars, like I could have spent on steak instead of pills that don't really taste that good, you know? And when I did do ketogenic diet, it was, I would take so much supplements. It basically felt like I was eating a meal just made out of pills. So, and there are people out there who are, you know, all excited about claiming how many supplements a day they're taking. They're like, oh, I'm taking 120 pills a day, you know, and they're happy about that. I'm like, that's crazy, you know? And now I'm, I'm super happy not to supplement with anything, not, no powders, no you know, magical potions that only caused rashes on my skin. I mean, I'm much happier about that. And it was the same thing, even like with the omega-3s. I was, I used to supplement with omega-3 oils as well when I did um, ketogenic diet and my levels weren't any better. And it was probably because um, I was still eating some nuts. So it was probably a little bit heavier on the omega-6 um, side, but it definitely didn't look like it helped my um, ratio in terms of omega threes and omega sixes with any supplements. Yeah, it's one interesting thing about supplements. There's some supplements that, you know, the way they uh, the way they build them, you know, some of the some of the compounds in supplements can actually have a disruptive uh, effect on the gut. You know, it causes leaky gut type problems, and so that's something we've seen. We've had. Uh, you know, so Dr. Shafia Clemens and Shabatot talking about the fact that certain medication supplements, antibiotics, over-the-counter prescription drugs can have a disruptive uh, effect on the gut. So that's interesting. The thing about vitamin D is something that I looked a little bit into and was looking at something called the diurnal variation of vitamin D. And what I found out, you know, not only is there a seasonal variation, so yes, if you take it in January in the Northern Hemisphere versus July, you're likely to have a very different reading, but also just even throughout the day, uh, and vitamin D often will be low in the morning and it will go up much higher, up to even 30% higher in the afternoon. And so uh, th those are just things that, you know, when people get these labs, it, you know, it, it could be just a different time of day that you took it could make a 30% difference. So, you know, your, your lab was 32. And so 30% of that, you know, you would, if you would have taken it in the afternoon, it might've been 42. 
And so even though it was still normal, it would have been higher normal, you know, in a higher normal range. So we, we get old, really excited about these little things. But it's interesting to see that despite all the supplementation, uh, just being on a meat-based diet, you're, you, you were better off from a nutrient profile on a set of lab tests, which I think is kind of, you know, kind of something that many, many people would not expect. Did you look at vitamin C levels? I can't remember. I thought you did. Do you remember that was part of the... That was normal. Yeah, that was part of the spectra cell. Um, yeah, so your vitamin C level was normal, yeah. you know. You know, and again, I, I, I think that's cool. I mean, I still, I just, I just the serum values may, may represent not what's going on typically. There may be other, you know, tissue levels in my, my view are going to be more more informative to us, but still it's very interesting because some people would say, oh my gosh, I'm going to test my serum vitamin C level and, and wow, it's normal. <laughs> yeah, and for me, I tested with the, uh, with um, for vitamin D just to see like what I can do without supplements and what I did and a lot of people we're kind of against it, but um, I use the tanning boots to uh, bump my vitamin D up because my levels um, in January, they were down to like 14. So what I started doing was um, I would do um, tanning bed on the lowest level for like seven minutes, um, twice a week. And I bumped my vitamin D from, I think it was like 14 to 50s. Um, just from the like, month of doing that twice a week. And yeah, I know that a lot of people are afraid of, you know, tending beds or whatnot, but I think, you know, those makes a poison, you know, if you overdo it, if you bake in there for hours, yeah, it's going to have effect on your skin and maybe skin cancer. But if you just use it minimally, it can actually benefit you. So it's kind of interesting to see just from like that low exposure of that, you know, my vitamin D levels went from teens to 50s. Yeah, it might be interesting to see kind of what you notice with that being in Phoenix, assuming you're yeah. hanging around outside in the middle of the summer here where we get about as much sun as any place on the planet. So right. maybe you won't even need the tanning bed anymore. No, it definitely <laughs> won't. No, I'm taking advantage of the sun outside. That's for sure. Yeah, Zach, you guys are outside all the time and it's sitting sunny out here. So I got my rowing machine outside in the in the backyard, getting getting my getting a little sunlight for me too but i do think that is another important aspect of health is just getting out in sunshine and absolutely and, has know, totally different effect on yeah. the body and that's what i noticed too even like from gut health perspective like when i'm out in the sun and my joints also feel so much better like if i spend some time um outside it's almost it almost feels like they get better um um not mobility but it just feels uh, much better like you know, even prior to going carnivore, I would have a lot of joint pain, you know, just from different vegetables I was consuming. Right now, it's basically non-existent, but still can notice a little bit better improvement just from being out in the sun. And then I have another experiment um, starting April with the raw carnivore diet. <laughs> so I'm going to be testing um for nutrients as well see my bone density as well if that improves because you know there are people out there claiming that raw meat is um better than cooked meat and you absorb more nutrients from that so i'm kind of interested not super excited about it because i do like a seared steak but um yeah i'm just interested to see the micronutrient levels and my bone density what that's going to do, um, and also other inflammation markers, if that changes at all, and LDL. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm going to be experimenting with uh, in April for a whole month. Are you going to like source a local butcher or something to try to get something as fresh as possible with that approach? Or? I'll be working with U.S. Wellness Meats. I love their quality of meat and it's always grass fed. I always enjoyed their, um, their steaks. And so they're going to be my sponsor. They're not um, promoting raw meat diet by any means, but they, um, they're generous enough to, to provide all the meat. So they're, um, be shipping me some beef, some lamb, and um, raw liver. So it's <laughs> awesome. It'll be interesting to see how that yeah. how that all plays out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested, Sylvia. I mean, just because you said they're going to be shipping you raw liver, and I, I I looked at it, and I thought there was some issue with transporting you know organ meats over state lines, but maybe that's not the case. I'm not sure, you know, how that plays out. But you know, interestingly. And, and people say, oh, that sounds crazy. And, and, I, and I've got no real great desire to be, eat a bunch of raw meat or anything like that. But, but I've certainly been to a restaurant where I've had beef carpaccio or steak tartare. We've all eaten sushi. And, you know, throughout the world, there's all kinds of cultures that still eat quite a bit of raw meat. I mean, it's not that unusual in much of the world. Probably maybe, I don't know if Poland was like that or not. But, you know, when we look at our evolutionary past, I mean, you know, humans ate raw meat for most of the time we were on the planet. I mean, that's, that's another thing that people... Uh, you know, so to, to, to sort of say it's crazy to me, I mean, I, I can understand where people, you know, sort of want to want to experiment with that. And, I, and I, I say, go, you know, go ahead, you know, don't get don't get an infection because there is there is that risk there. Although it's probably not that big a deal if you make sure your meat is fresh and sourced well and it's not contaminated. Um, but this is a topic that, that is, is, is very much in contention within this carnivore community should you eat raw meat? You know, should you eat organ meat? Should you eat grass fed? Should you eat grain finished? And I've always been very agnostic about saying yes, or, you know, one is definitely better than the other, because I just don't know the answer. And I really appreciate people like you that are out there willing to test this and, and report back with your results. And, you know, realizing that every person might have, some people may have different, different experiences. I know there are people that did do raw and they said, didn't do much for them. They, they didn't really feel any better. You know, and, and so I think that's, I think it's, it's, it's great that you're doing that. And we'll look forward to seeing the results from that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if I feel any better, any stronger. I mean, I'm already feeling really great and whatnot, but, you know, all the claims out there just got me curious. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Are you, let me ask you, go back to the trend, because a lot of people, when they transition to a carnivore diet, there are some transition symptoms which you know some people are disconcerted about did you have any of those when you did you have any like gastrointestinal problems did you have any headaches lethargy rashes because some, some of those things do come up were there any things like that that you noticed for me um i actually well in terms of digestion i didn't go to the bathroom from like almost two weeks but for me that was a good thing because like i mentioned i i had IBD and that was, I was basically glued to the toilet at that point and it, I was miserable. So not going for two weeks, <laughs> I was happy with that. I mean, and it's, it wasn't like I was bloated or anything like that. I just didn't have the urge to go. So I didn't, and that was totally fine with me. And I know a lot of people freak out and they think they're constipated when they're just, you know, when you eliminate all the fiber you basically don't have that bulk and you don't have to go, but people freak out that they, you know, 
that they're um, constipated and not going. But for me, that was, um, yeah, that was like one of the, one of the first things that happened when I did transition. Um, the first two weeks were okay, but then I went through this horrible energy slump that I, for a day or two days, I felt like I was sleepwalking. I'm like, this is horrible. I, I still work for corporate. I had meetings I had to attend to and I just wasn't able to deal with it. And I almost gave up. But then, you know, the benefits for the digestion and my stomach just feeling really good. I figured, you know what, you committed to this for 30 days, just stick with it. And it was literally two days later, I woke up and it was like night and day, like the energy kicked in and I felt so good. I'm like, I don't know what just happened, but I feel great. The energy went back on. And yeah, since then I just stuck with it and I haven't really had any negative side effects um, from the carnivore diet, but yeah, there, and there is, um, transition period in terms of like hormones for women. So I did experience, you know, like the, um, you know, like the, um, my period date changing and stuff like that. So a lot of women may experience that as well. And there's a time where, you know, women freak out because they're start, start retaining maybe a little bit of more water or their um, estrogen levels go up. And I feel like it's sort of like my body at least started detoxing um, estrogen um, more. And that's when I experienced actually weight gain. And for the first week to probably a month, um, I did notice that my, you know, uh, my clothes were fitting a little bit tighter and it kind of made me concerned. But at the same time, um, I felt like, you know what, I don't care about the weight right now. All I want to do is just heal, you know, and that was my, um, that was number one thing for me. So I had, had to like put the weight gain aside, not worry about that and just focus on healing first. And yeah, at the beginning I had to eat. Um, I almost felt like I was eat, binge eating on meat, but um it wasn't like in a sense when it felt um, like disordered eating, but it felt good in a way that, you know, I was nourishing my body. And after a while, I just naturally started eating less and less. And, and then my weight also uh, started dropping and, and I started feeling a little bit leaner Then I had more energy to work out and whatnot. So, and, you know, it sort of like it all clicked together. It wasn't like instantaneous when people think like, oh yeah, after 30 days, I should experience like all these amazing healing benefits and weight loss. And that wasn't the case for me. Yeah, there were some weight struggles and, you know, especially mentally just, you know, going from the background of, you know, constantly working out and like almost like body dysmorphia as well. You know, putting on a little bit weight was just like, oh my God, you know, but like I said, healing took, um, was my number one. And I, uh, at that point I was like, I don't care. I just want to feel good. Finally. I just want to, you know, live my life normal. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that because I think a lot of times when people look into anything that's kind of growing in popularity, like the carnivore diet is, is 
they're going to more readily probably see the success stories where someone starts it and within the first month they drop 10 pounds or something like that. So then they, they get excited to do it, you know, especially someone who's maybe struggled with weight in the past and has been done on a variety of different diets with no success to see your story where, you know, patience is kind of the, the name of the game for that first month or so. And to let your body kind of heal like you did. And then ultimately, kind of play the long game and get those benefits once everything is kind of settled in and you've renormalized yourself a bit. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it really takes time, especially like if you've been malnourished for so long, you know, it, it takes time for your body to get to that balance level. And then once, you know, the healing part is over, then you can get stronger. Then you can work on, you know, building the muscle strength and whatnot. But you know, I feel like a lot of women, especially, they start obsessing because, oh my God, you know, they, first of all, they weight themselves every single day, which is another stupidity that, you know, I used to do back in my day, in my college days, you know, like one pound over and I'll be freaking out. And for women, the weight fluctuates so much throughout the month, even with, with the menstrual cycle and whatnot. And, you know, you get dehydrated, of course, you're going to weight less, you, you drink water, or you might retain a little bit more water, because maybe you over consumed a little bit too much sodium, you're going to retain more water. And so the weight aspect of the whole thing is just like, don't worry about it, you know, heal first, and then later on, everything's just going to fall into place. Hey, Sylvia, let me ask you, um, you know, outside of your experiments, because it seems like you're always on some experiment, but what is your, what would, what would you say your day-to-day -day baseline diet is now as a carnivorous diet? How much do you eat? What are you kind of eating? How many times a day are you eating? You know, just, just, just kind of walk us through what would be, you know, if you could take a month's worth of eating and kind of make an average day out of that, what would that look like? And then I want to ask you another question right after that. Um, I eat twice a day. I always eat breakfast because um, I know a lot of people like to intermittent fast and that's been very popular um, for me and my hormones. And I feel like for most women, it is very beneficial to eat breakfast. Um, and I usually eat probably pound to pound and a half in the morning. And then I'll have another meal before 3 p.m. So, and then, so I kind of do like maybe reverse fasting, what people would say, or intermittent fasting. And sometimes maybe if I um, need to eat earlier, I have my meal at 1 p.m. And, and that would be another basically steak um, that's pound or pound and a half. But that, that tends to be um, like three pounds in a day, I would say, but it also depends how active I am. Right now I am recovering from the knee surgery, so I haven't been super active, but it's been interesting to see that I haven't really put on um, any weight um, since not really being exercising for the past six months. Um, I am gonna be doing a DEXA scan this week prior to going the bra experiment, um, just to see my body composition, what has changed just from not um, lifting weights if my bones um, got a little bit weaker. Um, so yeah, I will have results for that uh, sometime this week as well. I mean, it's interesting, you're eating, you're eating three pounds of meat a day, which is a lot. I mean, you're not, you're not, I mean, Zach's sitting next to you, you're not a giant person at all. I mean, you're very <laughs> slim, very lean. I mean, I remember when we got our body fat tested together. I was worried because you, you, you just about, and you're a female and you just about got me. <laughs> I got to step it up. So, yeah. so you're lean, you're ripped. I mean, and so, 
to think that a you know, relatively small woman is eating three pounds of meat a day, a lot of women would find that shocking that you can be lean that way. And it's also interesting that despite relative inactivity, you're not gaining weight, you know, putting on body fat, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, you said you eat like three pounds of meat a day. Are you eating, are you going out of way to eat a lot of organ meat? Are you eating a lot of seafood still? Are you eating, what, what you know, is it just steaks or what is it? What, what else are you eating in there? Well, um, because I do like to experiment. Um, the pa past month I was eating mostly seafood and then I included some raw um, liver in that. Um, but I honestly feel best when I just eat steaks. Yeah, I know that people say that, you know, eat organ meats, eat nose to tail, eat, you know, for proper glycine to methionine ratios, you know, because of, all these health benefits to that. Um, but I feel the best when I just eat steak. Yeah, I know it's, it can be expensive, but you know, if, if I can have New York strip like twice a day, three times a day, that's, that's the best I, I feel on that, you know? So I don't go out of my way. Um, I do have farms that send me free organ meats. And recently I even had a whole beef had sent to me <laughs> that was interesting um but yeah i mean i don't discriminate if i um whatever i get for free i'll eat it um but if i go and buy it myself it's usually steak you're opening yourself up to some potential uh goofy experiments with saying you'll eat anything for free uh, well, <laughs> get some nose to tail that's, sent that's here carnivore, yeah. <laughs> yeah no i mean I, and, and i understand and i feel and i feel the same way you know as far as what, what makes me feel good and i just have to be honest about that yeah. but are you thinking about at some point reintroducing uh some non-carnivorous type foods in your diet are you thinking about running those experiments is that has that crossed your mind yet i mean not, you know i think that's perfectly appropriate to to, 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 to test, but I mean, is that something you think you'll be doing anytime in the near future? So when I did the experiment with the, a continuous glucose meter, um, they kind of told me that I'll just experiment with adding fruits to see what happens. And I did that and I, along with that, I also ran uh, microbiome testing just to see what's going on in terms of um, the bacteria and so my gut. Um, so in terms of how I felt having fruit, uh, like, few bites of fruit um, and they say that fruit is the least problematic for people with um, digestive issues. Um, it didn't make me feel any bad or worse. What was interesting for me was that when I did eat it um, with meat, it kind of like the meat didn't feel as um, satisfying. So almost like the fiber in the fruit, even though there's not that much, it's, it's like blocking the absorption of certain nutrients, or maybe it's causing, like when it sits in the gut, it's maybe causing the digestive um, juices to secrete like almost on constant basis when it makes you hungrier. I don't know how that works, but I just didn't feel as satisfied um, with the fruit itself. And it didn't make me feel any better. And do I, am I thinking about adding that in? Honestly, I just feel too good right now to do that, to experiment with that. Um, I don't feel like there would be any benefit. I mean, I ate fiber for so long and got to a point when I did eat just uh, basically asparagus, um, celery, and romaine lettuce, because those, those were the, and cucumber, that, those were the things that didn't bother my digestive um, tract at all. 
And again, like I did not benefit from that in any way whatsoever. If anything, it just made me hungrier. And even even if I did eat a big steak with that, so um, no, I don't think I'm gonna experiment with that um, more. What was interesting though to see with the microbiome test was that when I did add that a little bit of fruit, so I did take tests before. And the bacteria in the gut that's responsible for um, low inflammation and also burning a lot of body fat, um, it was really high before eating the fruit. Then after eating it, it went down to like 20, having it like only 20% of that. And then three days later, after not eating fruit, just meat, it went back up. So in a sense, you can change your microbiome very quickly with anything. Um, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, people say that fruit can be beneficial, but when you look at the inflammation markers, like in the gut bacteria itself, um, they're kind of, it doesn't seem like it's all that beneficial. You know, it's interesting. You know, I, I have a lot of sort of skepticism around how much we, we faith we put in the microbiome. I mean, not the fact that it's not important, but I, I think we, we think we know far more than we actually do at this point. And so I, I just, anytime somebody tells me this is a perfect microbiome and this is what you want, I always have to say, you know, let's put this in a little context and realize how dynamic it is and, and, and all the factors that may affect that and what may be good, what may be bad. Clearly there are some pathogens you know, C. difficile, you know, you know, and, you know, Shigella, Salmonella, things like that that are clearly pathogenic that we don't want to have in great quantities in our, in our, in our guts. And there's maybe some evidence, you know, in certain populations that trend certain ways may be beneficial, but I think we're a long ways from doing that. You know, you haven't had fiber in, in a year and most people would say uh, that's more harmful for your gut and you can't have bowel movements. And you, you were somebody that had a really bad digestive system. How is your digestive system today with regard to, you know, bowel frequency and normal normality and digestive symptoms? How, do, how does that compare today compared to when you're eating all this wonderful, healthy fiber? Oh my God. I feel so much better now. I mean, it's now my, um, I go regularly to the bathroom pretty much every day. Um, people still ask me questions about that, but it's definitely normalized. I I don't get any skin rashes anymore on my on on my. I would get like severe rash on my abdomen and my hands. That is gone. Um, and I don't really experience any digestive problems. So it's been after six months, everything um, got really really good to a point when it was just like, you know, no problems whatsoever. So. And that's, you know, another thing that motivates me to sticking with, with the diet itself, because at this point, I only see benefits. And the longer I go, there's always something that, you know, I notice like, oh, my God, this hasn't happened since forever now, you know, whatever little symptom it might have been. And even like with joint pain or even recovery from, from the surgery, from the knee surgery that I've had, you know, I it's been tremendous to see how different it was like recovering from MRSA and that being carnivore to now with the knee surgery and how good I felt uh, just right after and basically after surgery I, I had a steak too so it definitely made me feel much better too but 
just little things like that, you know, and mood wise, my mood has improved so much better. Like my mental health is so, so much better. I don't experience that up and downs, you know, getting angry or, you know, flipping on people for whatever reason, like stupid stuff that for me on vegan diet would happen constantly. I would be, you know, angry all the time for absolutely no reason. And it was funny because they tell you, you know, when you, you're vegan and then I would practice yoga as well, you would get experience like this bliss and whatnot during the practice. And all I remember was feeling just like anger and wanting to get out of the class and eat something because I was hungry constantly. And now a carnivore diet is just like the, the mood, you know, the benefit from eating all that meat and, and mood is, is just amazing. No anxiety, nothing. So did you have, I mean, a lot of people that were, you know, previously practicing veganism and, and, you know, you know, I mean, obviously some of them, some of them seem to do okay for a period of time. And there's probably maybe some genetic differences in how well they turn over vitamin A and convert, you know, uh, the uh, beta, the carotenes, the carotenoids to the retinols and things like that. Did you have any, uh, one of the common things we often hear about are dental issues. Did you have any teeth issues that were, that cropped up on vegan diet? And, and has oh that changed with, uh, yes. with the carnivore diet? Yes. I mean, I had, um, I had such huge uh, the teeth sensitivity. I couldn't drink water. It would hurt, but that mostly happened on the fruit diet. And then I had like receding gums, like especially on my bottom teeth. And what I noticed I think it was like three months into carnivore diet that started, it was almost like it started closing up. And I noticed like a lot of like calcium buildup on it too. And it, and it started like, it was weird. It, it started reversing itself. And now I wanted to take pictures, but it was so hard to take a picture <laughs> of that. But I was amazed with that. I'm like, wow, this is actually, it's healing my teeth. So definitely a huge, huge difference. Yeah, what was, what was Bobby saying about that? He said it felt like his teeth were almost remineralizing mm -hmm. or something. Exactly, like that. yeah, exactly. And you could see, like, I could see on mine, there was, like, little calcium buildup on that. But, like, in the, and then it was almost like on vegan diet, it was constantly irritated. There were red and bleeding. And on carnivore diet, it's just all healed up very quickly, too. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that myself, you know, I, I never had like severe teeth, teeth issues, but I did, I noticed I had some tooth sensitivity and like running between the interface between my gum, you know, and, you know, the, the, and, and my, my tooth, you know, sometimes it'd be sensitive. I drank something cold, it would sometimes really be very sensitive and that's all gone away. You know, and the last time I went to the dentist, they were like, your teeth are great, man. You know, <laughs> and it was kind of funny because the, the dental hygienist I had actually was commenting that the gums were looking a lot better. And so I thought that was also another pretty cool thing that you objectively see, you know, disease kind of reversing on, you know, a diet that, you know, tends to include more animal products, which I think is, you know, maybe a clue, maybe a clue for all of us. We'll have to see though. Hey, hey Sean, I actually have a question for you before I forget Sylvia brought up when she was talking about just kind of her transition in and you're probably as good of a person as any in terms of, receiving feedback from people going about a carnivore approach do you have any like idea of like what ranges of people having just like immediate success versus having to go through like a three to four week kind of uh, detox for lack of a better word 
Yeah, I mean, I think that in all honesty, that's going to kind of depend on where they're coming from, because a lot of people come to this from a ketogenic background, and that becomes a little bit easier transition. Although, you know, as you remember, we had, uh, uh, who do we have on the other day with the, with the oxalates? Um, Elliot oh. was Elliot Overton, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So we talked about that, and I think there's some people that 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 may ha- may experience some of that phenomenon. Um, you know, even though they're on a ketogenic diet and they're already fat adapted, but they may find this oxalate dumping issue causing rashes and joint pain and so on and so forth. But I would say that most people, I've not, I've I've seen a very very small minority of the people that have zero transitional symptoms. I mean, there's there's a few people that just walk into it and it's like they feel great from day one. I'd say that's by far the minority. That's maybe 10, 15%. I'd say that, you know, there's probably an equal number that it's just really, really bad. They have a really hard time transitioning. Uh, and most of those people are very much uh, carbohydrate dependent. You know, these are people that are coming from really high carbon diets, you know, and, and, you know, there's people that want to often transition They're They're like, um, maybe CrossFit athletes or people in a, in a high, a glycolytic demand sport and they're trying to transition cold turkey and they're still trying to do their activities at full speed and then sometimes those people really struggle and for them it might make sense to kind of ease into it either from a you know slowly you know tapering down the diet to, to a meat-based diet or easing up on some of the activity until they transition better but uh, you know it seems like about 30 percent of the people have uh, loose stools or, or diarrhea during the transition period. I say that seems what I've what I've seen. Um, it seems like a fairly, you know, uh, probably half the people have energy issues um, where they're just probably not eating enough. But you know, I think that's that's probably the answer for many of the people. But there's also people that, you know, it's it's just transitioning, you know, switching from that from that glucose more glucose dependent metabolism to a you know, more of a fat-based metabolism that takes, you know, it just takes, takes, you know, whatever, three to four weeks is what some of these studies on ketosis show us. Uh, so I think that that holds up pretty well for, for, for most of the people. But I mean, the, the, you know, there's also a psychological transition that occurs. You know, how do I deal with no lack of variety? And, you know, there's ways around that. And I, t- I tell people, you know, use as much variety as you possibly can to get you through at the beginning, you know, just use it. And then, and then what happens in the end for many people like myself, when I started, I was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, when I, when I say that, I mean like eggs and seafood and meat and shrimp and bacon and, you know, a little bit of dairy and, you know, a lot in seasonings and stuff like that just to kind of get me into it. And then then after three, four months in, I was like, man, just give me another damn ribeye. And, and I was just, you know, and that's what I think happens to a lot of people. You just kind of find what really works for you and your, your relationship with food really changes uh, to where you're like, I just want nourishment and it tastes good anyway. It's not like I, I I'm bummed about the fact that I got to eat another steak. You know, I had three steaks for breakfast here and I'm going to have another steak or two for dinner and I'm not going to be disappointed, you know? So it's uh, anyway, that's, that, that's been my experience after talking to literally thousands of people doing this now. Yeah, no, that's, that's good feedback. And then the other thing I wanted to mention too, is when you're talking about just kind of the, the volume of food you're eating and you're hitting like two to three pounds when you're kind of, you know, not necessarily running an experiment and the two times a day, uh, I think that's interesting because I know like it does seem like there's a lot of in, like push, I guess, within this to go to maybe a one meal a day setup or maybe try to artificially force that. And what I found a lot of times more so with the ketogenic diet than anything is that like 
when you're looking at fasting and intermittent fasting within the context of someone who's going to be burning a high level amount of energy above their resting metabolic rate is you should probably start looking at like your, your energy demand within the window versus the actual time. So like, cause I'll have folks that I'll be working with from time to time. They'll be like, should I, should I fast until noon? And I'm like, well, what are you doing from when you wake up until, till noon? And if they say, well, I'm going to go for a two hour run. I'm like, well, when you look at that fast, it may be 20 hours on paper, but from an energy standpoint, you burnt what you would have normally in 40 hours. So you, I think you'd want to keep, especially when it comes to hormones and things like that in an active lifestyle, I think uh, that's a, a great message that you have that, you know, don't skip breakfast if you're hungry on a carnivore diet. Yeah. Like if you're hungry, eat, eat it and then wait till you're hungry again. And if that's... And I mean, when you... you do and you're, you have your last meal, you know, at one or 3 p.m., you know, you're going to wake up hungry, mm-hmm. you know, so that's given. But when I did um, that 200-mile uh, bike ride, um, I actually loaded on meat, and I probably had like five pounds of meat in that day. It was challenging to put that down, but um, definitely, I, you know, I stopped eating around 5 p.m., and then, you know, the next day I didn't have to uh, eat and I didn't want to eat you know because I I don't want to be biking stuffed but it definitely um, fueled me for pretty much like the first 50 miles of my of of my ride where I didn't feel hungry at all so like you said it, it really depends you know there's not like you know set schedule and you know, meal plan, you really have to like figure it out for yourself, what works for you with your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that was another thing I wanted to ask you about, because I think that's when I first started following you is when you did that 100 mile bike ride and, uh, you know, or 200, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> got to give you all that credit. That's a solid effort. Uh, but one thing I noticed with switching to a high fat diet was like post efforts that large, you know, like, just the mobility or like the fluidity of your joints after that, like the way um, I describe it and my buddy, Jeff Browning, who follows a similar nutrition plan and runs hundred mile races too, um, says it's weird. It's like you get done and you're still sore and you're still tired because I mean, you just spent the whole day running, but you can like do an air squat and it's not like it, it, you can feel that your legs were worked the day before, but it's not like this inability to bend your knees. And I noticed a big improvement in that when I switched from a high carb diet to a high fat diet. And then, you know, since hanging out with Sean a few times a week, (laughs) you know, I've been starting to do more of a carnivore approach post, especially post big efforts. So like, um, you know, when I go out and do a, a run that's half a day or a full day long, I'll go strict carnivore for a week or so after. And I feel like that's even another step forward, like maybe not quite as big of a step as the one from high carb to low carb was, but it seems to be like just even, I just feel like I could almost go running that next day. Whereas in the past, I wouldn't have been able, I wouldn't even thought about doing that. And I usually don't, cause there's really no purpose to running the next day after that. But um, you know, it's, it's just weird how that all works out. So I guess my question after that kind of long winded explanation is what did you notice after the 200 miles versus some other like, workouts that you had done following previous diets? So I did a first 200 mile that, that I did, I did actually on ketogenic diet. Um, and my fuel sources 
um, I basically brought with me like avocados, peely nuts on the ride, um, macadamia nuts, stuff like that. And I had crickets with me <laughs> too. And I had um, ghee with me. So that was like my fuel sources, but it was really challenging to um, eat all that fat and then hop on a bike and ride because everything would be coming up. Mm. And so that was challenging on its own, but I, I did it. My energy wasn't, um, wasn't good throughout the ride. Um, and then when I did it on carnivore diet, um, it was much better. I actually did bring with me um, some meat and then I stopped at some places where I could just uh, buy like burger patties. I filled up on that and just even having food in my system, um, it didn't feel like um, I was tired, you know, and I still had the energy to keep going. And then digestion wise, it was definitely much better and easier. And then the next day, like you've mentioned, I felt like I could, you know, yeah, I was sore. Um, Cause after riding about hundred miles straight, um, my legs start giving out, everything starts going numb and my back would hurt. But when you, the next day, um, I woke up, I'm like, I kind of feel good. I mean, I could, you know, do my regular workout that I usually do and probably even hop on a bike. And whereas to when I did the keto version of that ride, it, I, I took a week off to recover. And probably if I had maybe some animal protein in, in, in a diet, maybe it would have been better. But I probably still struggled a lot, you know, with just the inflammation from the nuts itself. And for me, even avocados were causing issues later on. But it, yeah, from like carnivore standpoint, I feel like even smaller workouts, you know, I recover so, so much better, you know, and I have energy throughout the day. I can, if I wanted to, I could hit like really good two workouts in a day and then I still do something like leisurely like hiking and stuff like that so it's definitely better um, for me in terms of recovery yeah that's that's really and that's interesting and, and I've you know believe me I've heard that story over and over again with recovery and it, and it kind of makes sense you know with with you know when we're thinking about what we're doing when we're beating ourselves up on an endurance race uh, you know, Zach out there running 100 miles, you on a bike for 200 miles, uh, you know, you're tearing down a lot of muscle tissue, you're, you're you know, you're, uh, you know, and so your demands for re repairing that are going to be quite high. And, you know, what are you going to repair it with? Well, you're going to want to repair it with what what's being torn down, which are the same amino acids uh, that are in, you know, animal tissue. And so by giving that, giving yourself plenty of that animal tissue via things like steak and, and whatever, you know, fish or whatever, you're going to have all the substrate there to, to more effectively repair things in a, in a very nice ratio. And I think that, that just makes sense. And then again, also the ease of digestion, uh, the whole meat rots in your colon thing is just absolute BS, oh you know, mythology. Yeah. I mean, I've heard all of that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm so it's, it's, you know, and absorbing like the energy or the fear of the animal. If you eat a steak or yeah. anything that comes from the animal, that was, they, they'll come up with anything and everything just to scare you, um, sway you away from eating meat. So, yeah, yeah, I saw the stuff about the vibrational energy. And yes. the, you know, just, <laughs> it just makes me laugh. But anyway, so it's been great. We've got, we've got a double header today. We've got Don Lehman coming on a little bit. Uh, Professor Don Lehman is going to be another good one. Nice. Um, where do you 
Uh, so you're, you just moved to Phoenix. Tell me a little bit about what you're up to for the next uh, bit of time. I know you and I talked about doing some collaborative stuff. Hopefully we'll get you in on this animalbasednutrition.com thing that's going to be launching here soon. Um, but tell us a little bit about what you're up to uh, and where people can find you currently. Well, I am on Instagram at biohacking.chick. Um, and I do have a website, biohackingchick.com. I do coaching um not just carnivore but you know how to improve your health in general um with some maybe biohacking tools and stuff like that and with um with carnivore diet as well so i do a little bit of that and that's basically the plan just to you know spread the carnivore message and you know make people aware especially women who are so afraid of eating more meat um but yeah it's good for you and probably better for you than than anything else good stuff zach any last minute words no i think that i think that's it that was an awesome awesome interview and uh we might have to have you back on the road especially after down the road after you do the the raw meat experience and especially now that you're here in phoenix uh yeah i'll probably see sean at paleo effects right you're gonna be presenting there yeah right i'll be there in uh end of april yeah i'm doing doing my first paleo effects so that should be fun yeah i guess i'll i guess i'll run into you then yeah that'd be yeah I'm, i'm happy that the carnivore message is spreading it's gonna be me good. Too. Yeah, me too. I think it's gonna help a lot of people. I, you know, I just I got I got done talking to a group from the Philippines yesterday. They've got a Facebook group of four hundred and thirty thousand people, and they are yeah. like seeing carnivore explode over there, and they were super excited. And so I may be going out to the Philippines to speak directly, and some of these other places in Asia, which are you know, there's there's growing interest overseas too. So it's pretty cool. Um, Zach, anything else? I'm trying to think. I think that's it. I'll, I'll definitely link all your stuff to the show notes, Sylvia, so listeners can go check that out and uh, definitely check out our Instagram page for sure. There's some cool, cool N equals one experiment stuff over there. I'm sure there'll be more to come. So uh, thanks again thank for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.